I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. It's been a running theme of Donald Trump's presidency. Those who go to work for him and who are closest to him have a falling out. They quit or are fired or just walk away and then inevitably go public, describing the president as impulsive, irrational, ignorant, and unethical. But nobody has spoken out with more force and with more shocking examples than John Bolton who for 17 months until September of last year served as Trump's national security advisor. His long-awaited new book, The Room Where It Happened, provides the most damning portrait yet of a chief executive whose sole interest in dealing with foreign leaders is to solicit their help in ensuring his re-election, even to the point of reassuring the president of China that it's perfectly okay for him to herd a million Muslim Uyghurs into concentration camps. Now his book, already shipped out and due to be released next week, has provoked an extraordinary legal battle as Trump's Justice Department seeks to have it clawed back from bookstores all over the world. We'll talk to a veteran national security lawyer about how the case is likely to play out, and we'll talk to Bolton's first chief of staff at the White House about what he makes of his former boss's revelations on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, we've kind of gotten inured to all these accounts from various former White House aides of just how ignorant Trump is of sort of basic matters of public policy. But I got to say, I mean, the the Bolton book (laughs) revelations in some respects are just delicious on this score. The idea that the guy doesn't know that Finland is an independent country and not part of the Russian Federation The idea that he doesn't know that Britain is a nuclear power and has to ask that of the then Prime Minister Theresa May. You know, it strikes me these are things that a basic high school student would know the answers to, certainly any reasonably educated high school student. And the idea that the President of the United States is completely clueless about such basic matters is kind of disturbing. Well, you know, it's interesting that you should mention high school as kind of the baseline for what people ought to know. If you go back, as I did, and look at what some of Trump's most senior advisors have said about him over the years after they've left office, they don't think he comes anywhere near a high school level of knowledge. To wit, Jim Mattis said that Trump had the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader, according to Bob Woodward in his book, Fear. Rex Tillerson, of course, called him a fucking moron, according to uh, multiple accounts. John Kelly, his former chief of staff, said, according to The Washington Post and NBC News, that he was an idiot. And then BuzzFeed, former national security advisor, said that the former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster called Trump a dope with the intelligence of a kindergartner. All right. So these are the assessments of his former secretary of state, his former secretary of defense, his former national security advisor, his former chief of staff. I mean, I don't know how much, you know, evidence you would need to kind of prove the case that the guy is out to lunch than the testimony of that. I mean, just 
imagine if this were some kind of court hearing of some kind and who you could call as witnesses to the president's ignorance. But, you know, look, we can joke about this, but the book does reveal some things that are pretty serious. And, you know, you and I have talked about, I think, one of the most shocking revelations in the book, which is that when he's meeting with the leader of China, Xi, he encourages him to go ahead and, you know, put the Uyghurs in concentration camps. And of course, uh, the Chinese have put something like a million Uyghurs, Chinese Muslims, in in these prison camps. Yeah. I mean, look, for everything that's been written about and talked about in this book, I mean, that is truly the most appalling disclosure that the president would seem to be giving a green light to the detention of up to a million Muslims in in these camps. I happened to pull this event took place just a year or so ago, so I happened to pull the uh, China section of the State Department Human Rights Report talking about up to more than one million Uyghurs had been arbitrarily detained in extrajudicial internment camps designed to erase religious and ethnic identities. It then goes on to quote, former security officials in the camps, uh, as well as human rights groups affirming that um, detainees had been abused, tortured, and killed by authorities. So this is, you know, on the scale of human rights abuses, probably, you know, in the upper tier, if not number one, as the most horrific abuse by a major government right now. And here is Trump talking to the President Xi of China, and he doesn't protest, raise objections, you know, something every president would have done and does do when talking to authoritarian dictators. He actually gives a green light. You can't... Far from it. There's a sense in which he's envious that these yeah. authoritarian leaders can do these kinds of things. And, and this is a pattern with him. I mean, you know, you go back to the 2016 presidential campaign. I remember when he was on Morning Joe and he was being questioned by Joe Scarborough about Vladimir Putin and the fact that Putin, who Trump considered a strong leader, was linked to assassinations and murders of journalists um, and dissidents and others in Russia. And, you know, what was Trump's reaction? Well, you know, we do it too, and it shows that he's a strong leader. So we've said on this show many, many times, it's easy to be inured by this stuff because there's so much of it. But it is, it does bear bringing up again and focusing on this stuff is disturbing. (laughs) Yeah, at at a minimum. Now, you know, look, we got to say John Bolton doesn't come out of this with clean hands. He could have raised some of these issues earlier when the Congress was going through the impeachment process. And, you know, the question of what he knew about the president's activities was highly relevant. Now, in this book, and you've gotten your hands on it, I have not yet, but you have, there is a discussion of the Ukrainian issues that were at the heart of the impeachment case, and he does seem to, well, he does affirm what Fiona Hill testified to, that uh, his reference, uh, that he did indeed refer to Rooney, Rudy Giuliani's shenanigans dealing with his Ukrainian cronies as a drug deal. And that probably more significantly, there was a meeting on August 20 with the president when Bolton and others were urging him to lift the suspension of military aid to Ukraine. And Trump says, according to Bolton's book, no, not until they turn over all their documents about allegations or investigations into Biden. So he doesn't have a lot to say on these matters, but those those are crucial that would have been crucial testimony in the impeachment trial. And then he says, well, it shouldn't have been so arbitrarily restricted to Ukrainian matters. There was uh, so much else 
They could have investigated in terms of the president prostituting foreign policy in furtherance of his political campaign, uh, citing the conversations with Xi and citing another conversation with Erdogan of Turkey about how Trump had offered to um, tube a, a criminal investigation into a, a Turkish government-owned bank. So the basic question is, why didn't Bolton disclose this before? I mean, you know, he accuses the Democrats of impeachment malpractice because they didn't include the matters only he had information about and which they did not. Well, you know, I, I as you pointed out, I do. I obtained a copy of the book myself. It arrived today. Well, at what a, what a reporter. Yeah. Uh, the UPS guy uh, delivered it. I can't name him because he's my confidential source, but he was wearing a brown uniform and had uh, brown shorts on. That's all I'll say about him. And so you're right. I mean, he could have said all of these things before. He he didn't. But I, I will say that he did take this opportunity to defend his honor and his pride and his physical integrity. And let me let me explain what I mean by that. John Bolton defended his very bushy mustache in this 500-page tome about his experience in the Trump White House. I'm going to read a short— Only on skullduggery do do people learn this. It's not been— I got to say, I mean, the New York Times uh, got the book. The Washington Post got the book. The Wall Street Journal ran a whole goddamn excerpt of the book. You have to listen to skullduggery— to get to the really important stuff in this Bolton book. And I'm going to just read this to you now. I'm reading from the actual book itself, page six of The Room Where It Happened. Was Trump looking only for people from central casting? Much was made of his purported dislike of my mustache. For what it's worth, he told me it was never a factor, noting that his father also had one. Other than shrinks and those deeply interested in Sigmund Freud, which I assuredly am not, I don't really believe my looks played a role in Trump's thinking. So there you have it. Yeah. And what I'm thinking is whether that passage is one of those that inc- that the government contends includes classified information that cannot be uh, uh, disclosed to the public. Sensitive compartmentalized information, S-C-I, mustache information. (laughs) That is at the heart of what is a a pretty extraordinary legal battle over this book uh, with the Justice Department trying to um, get a federal judge to enjoin Bolton from permitting distribution of the book, even though hundreds of thousands of copies have already been distributed to bookstores around the world, and even the likes of Clydman already has a copy. Anyway, to help us walk us through what is a pretty uh, fascinating legal constitutional case that has all sorts of First Amendment implications. We have a great guest, Mark Zaid, veteran national security lawyer. So let's get right to it. We now have with us veteran national security lawyer Mark Zaid to make sense of the legal battle over John Bolton's book. Mark, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So we just had this extraordinary hearing before Judge Lamberth in which the Justice Department is trying to get him to enjoin John Bolton from publishing his book, even though it's already been published and shipped to bookstores. The government is claiming he's in violation of his agreements not to disclose national security information. Tell us what you made of the court hearing and where this case is going to go from here. Sure. Well, I mean, frankly, it was a little painful at times to listen to with a lot of rambling on arguments that either weren't accurate, didn't make sense, or were just irrelevant to what the issue was today, which was on this request for extraordinary request for injunctive relief by the government. I will say, look, I think the lawyers involved are very intelligent, smart, sophisticated, experienced lawyers, but 
this is a really niche practice expertise field, and these folks don't have that. So if I... What, what do you mean by that? What did they get wrong? Uh, they got a lot of things wrong. And in fact, there were a lot of things that were said that I think are going to be used later against Bolton in particular. And you heard the skepticism from Judge Lamberth with respect to the contractual obligations of Bolton in not finishing through with the pre-publication review process. Now, I do not believe that the government has a chance at this TRO. Temporary restraining order. And what the government is asking is for the judge to enjoin direct Bolton to take any action he can think of to claw back his book, even though the excerpts have already been published in the Wall Street Journal and I mean, other publications. I'm the book in my hands right oh. now. <laughs> okay. Clydman has a copy of this book. I, I'm uh, not the world's greatest reporter. It's just a, the UPS guy just delivered it to my house. I'm imagining that there are thousands of other people who have this book now or will today. So it seems, as they said in the hearing, the horse is out of the barn. It, it seems like uh, it's pretty unlikely that anyone's going to be able to claw this book back. So why, why is the government even pursuing that legal strategy, Mark? Well, and, and let, me, let me just add a little bit first to what you guys are saying, because this is really important. And there's a part where both of you can actually weigh in on your expertise to show why this motion will fail. I mean, for one, the fact that you have the book, you know, that that indicates right there, even more so, Simon & Schuster, Bolton's publisher, has indicated that 200,000 copies were already shipped overseas or were printed overseas. So one of the requirements in a temporary restraining order has to do with the practicality of can the relief even really be granted? And there's no way it can't be. But from your expertise, both of you guys have have written and had books published by major publishers. You've signed book contracts. You know, and the audience now will know, that most of these contracts are incredibly standard in nature. There's not a lot that gets changed in the contracts. If you were at this point where your book had been had been printed but not yet disseminated to the stores, the distribution centers, from your contracts, do you have any legal authority to stop the publisher from disseminating copies? No, of course not. The book belongs to the publisher. I mean, so you know. why did the government put the onus on Bolton to stop the process if he doesn't even have the authority to do it? You know, and, and I wish that should have been Cooper's opening argument statement from the beginning to just say, Judge, we're only going to deal with the TRO. They can't meet this prong. Boom. Right here. Well, we don't have to waste our time with anything else, but we have to waste our time. Apparently, We're talking about Chuck Cooper, who was Bolton's lawyer, and the, the Justice Department lawyer was David Morrell, a former clerk to Clarence Thomas, arguing for the Justice Department. I don't know. I, I do not know why they brought the TRO, other than maybe vindictiveness, obviously. Or well, one theory, actually, yeah, one theory is that they did it uh, for one client alone, the president of the United sure. States, who wants to see them, you know, fighting on his behalf. Well, yeah. Now, interestingly, though, they may all right, understand from pre-pub review process, there's two things at play. One is civil penalties. One is potential criminal penalties. The government has taken the position that this manuscript is rife with classified information. You know, I have no idea, but it, the government's the one that makes that decision unless the court overturns it, which it does have the authority to do. So they're saying, boom, there's this there's classified information in the book. For purposes of this lawsuit, that's irrelevant. Doesn't make a darn difference. This is simply a civil case for breach of contract. Was Bolton legally obligated to submit the book for pre-publication review? And did he have the book printed, published, disseminated, whatever, before review was approved or publication was approved. The classification aspect of it goes to whether or not there are criminal penalties. Now, because the government has taken the position, especially with the TRO, the Temporary Restraining Order, to submit affidavits from the director of the NSA, the director of the DNI, uh, the director of one of the counterintelligence centers, 
saying that the information in the book is is classified and so highly classified that they can't even you know discuss it. And in fact, the judge mentioned that the NSA director's affidavit was really bare bones. Now that means if they wanted to ever pursue criminal charges against Bolton, they have to basically reveal what specific passages in the book fit those classification determinations and reveal the information. So they might have just undercut their own possibility of criminal prosecution if that was even really on the table uh, behind the scenes, which we don't know. Although actually, no, there was media reports. I think the LA Times reported that the government was contemplating criminal charges against Bolton. They're going to look foolish if they, let's say they lose the TRO motion, which I predict they will. I predict they'll win the underlying case, but you never know what the hell will happen. When you say underlying case, what do you mean by that? That Bolton violated his pre, his, his breach of contract, violated his non-disclosure agreement, and they will be able to obtain from Bolton his advance, his royalties uh, going forward for the rest of the existence of the planet. A lot of the argument today centered around the different levels of review. So there's uh, this one official classification authority named Ellen Knight, who's an expert, has done many of these kinds of reviews. And she completed her review or concluded that there was no classified information in the in the book. And then Another NSC official named Michael Ellis. Former top aide to Devin Nunes at the House Intelligence Committee. So he comes along. He has very little experience in these classification reviews. And all of a sudden, there's all this top secret SCI information in the book. The assertion from Chuck Cooper was that uh, the administration basically had higher level political people intervening and classifying information kind of retrospectively. What did you make of that series of arguments? Right, so that, that's an accurate depiction of, of where the posturing is. And of course, we don't know yet, but you know, anyone who's dealt with this administration certainly knows that that could be a real possibility. But here's the legal problem for Bolton. And this is where the lack of experience for his counsel, and for Bolton even, in having done this before, comes into play. I, Knight had, uh, I've been told, she did have approval authority, but she never exercised it. She told Bolton, apparently in a phone conversation, that she didn't think there was any classified information in the book, but he never received final authorization, approval in writing, that that was the case. She also wrote him an email, though, uh, affirming that she didn't find classified information in the book, okay, right? Yes, you're, you're right. But she, it wasn't the final approval because it wasn't, she, she wasn't the final authority who was going to weigh in on it. And, and we have had this happen before. I have seen it countless times where one official, even with authority, says, I don't think there's anything classified in it. But then it goes to other people, and they have a different view. And Bolton never received a final. We we get final letters from the government that says this is your final letter, and we have determined that subject to the changes that we have all discussed and agreed on, your book is approved for publication. And keep in mind, you still have to send us the proof galleries for us to review to make sure that, in fact, you made all the changes that we said. And when Bolton was then told later on that there is classified information in the book, he, it was his obligation to either go sue the U.S. government about it or to comply and not move forward with the publication. He doesn't get the choice to say, well, I disagree, so I'm going to go forward. So what is the remedy then if it if we all agree it's inconceivable that that the book can be clawed back at this point taken out of bookstores that uh, agents won't be going into Clydeman's house and seizing that copy of his book that can't happen so what 
can happen? What is the reasonable remedy that the government has here to deal with Bolton if the judge finds he, he did indeed violate his agreement? Sure. The remedy was set by the Supreme Court 40 years ago in a case called SNEP v. United States. Frank SNEP was a former CIA case officer in Vietnam, wrote a book called Decent Interval, never submitted it for pre-publication review. The U.S. government went after him after the book had been published. And the Supreme Court, and there's lots of issues with this decision, but this is what they issued, Uh, They established a constructive trust, which meant any profits associated with the book would be sent essentially to the Treasury Department. So the advance and any royalties. And during the arguments, the government lawyer made reference to the SNEP case a number of times, in particular to a decision out of the Fourth Circuit in 1990, where Frank, uh, who was a journalist, went into media after his stint in the CIA, uh, uh, tried to get out from under the injunction that had been plaguing him for a decade, and the court said, no, uh, injunction is still in place, and that's the proper... Disgorgement disgorgement of the profits, and they go to the Treasury so the government could end up making money off Bolton's book. Yes. So it's going to cost John Bolton at least $2 million to call the president stunningly uninformed. And we can get $2 million to retire a small portion of the government debt uh, as well. Which brings us the fact, if that happens and he loses all of his profits, then his whole reason for not wanting to testify before the House or the Senate certainly you know, gets undermined if the fact he was waiting. I'm, I'm glad you you brought that you brought that up, Mark, because you have a personal connection to the impeachment battle. You were the lawyer for the whistleblower who triggered the entire impeachment process, disclosing Trump's uh, phone call with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine. So I just wonder how you feel, given that Bolton could have testified in the impeachment hearings, could have testified before the Senate during the impeachment trial, but chose not to. I just wonder what your reaction is to him publishing this book now instead of testifying publicly back in January. Sure. I am incredibly disturbed But I'm disturbed as an American citizen, not as the lawyer for the whistleblower, because the whistleblower case was not about impeachment, of course, and that was never our objective. It was just what the outcome was. You know, our objective was to protect the, to ensure the information went to Congress, which it did, and to protect the whistleblower, which we did. So now that we look at as Americans, you know, would we have wanted to know what Bolton knew or knows, knew then and could have articulated it? I think Bolton himself said it because he said that the Congress, or at least the House, committed malpractice by narrowing its allegations or claims against the president to just Ukraine because he knew of so much more egregious activity that the president did. Well, are you kidding me? You knew that and you withheld it from the American public and the Congress. So, I mean, I think his, you know, each of us may have different opinions or Americans may have different opinions on that and history will judge. But personally, I'm pretty disturbed that Bolton didn't come forward because having, as my law practice, representing officials who who testified before Congress fairly regularly, I know that there was nothing stopping him from testifying before Congress as a matter of law. It was his decision other than protecting classified information from being disclosed in an open environment. And in fact, he could have taken his, this is this is kind of ironic, I suppose, he could have taken the meat of his book, drafted it into testimony, given it to the White House for pre-publication review. It would have had to have been reviewed in time for him to testify. And he wouldn't be going through what he's going through now because it would have already, whatever he could have said would have been Declassified. Although, although, wouldn't the same Justice Department that is suing him now likely have gone to court to try to block his testimony back then? Maybe. I mean, who? With this administration, can't rule anything. Of course, they they tried to block everybody's testimony, right? I think they would have failed uh, on on that. And I mean, then you can get into the arguments of you know should 
should the House have continued legal battles or gone slower and things like that. And we can go down lots of alternative paths. But uh, I mean, the long and short of it is, I you know, I think Bolton should have spoken up back then, and that was his patriotic obligation. But just out of curiosity, Mark, I mean, there's actually not a ton in the Bolton book new information affirming the Ukraine story. There, there is, there is some, but there are plenty of other examples of the president putting his electoral and personal political considerations over national security and U.S. foreign policy interests. So is, is that why it would have been valuable to you? Because it would have established a, a pattern of this kind of conduct? Right. Nothing more. And I haven't read the book, so I only know what's in the news reports, but I haven't heard anything other than with respect to Ukraine that it essentially just verified exactly what came out. Yeah, what what I've seen from the book and and uh, Kleiman, you got it there. Is on Ukraine, he affirms that he what Fiona Hill already testified to that he referred to what Giuliani was up to with his Ukrainian uh, cronies, a drug deal, and that there was an August twenty meeting in which Trump did say that he wasn't going to release the military aid to Ukraine until they turned over all their documents relating to the investigations into the Bidens and Clintons. That's not insignificant. No, 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 it's not insignificant. That is the quid pro quo that yes. you're talking about. No, I agree. I, my, my only point is that from at least what I've seen, it's pretty bare bones. There's not a lot of a lot of meat to that his account of that August 20 meeting. You're exactly obviously, obviously the Congress was pursuing, the House was pursuing a, abuse of power, abuse of office, and so everything else that's in the book would fit within that pattern that they could have relied on. They would have had to have gone beyond. There would have had to have been other articles of impeachment. Okay. Mark, so tell us how you think this case now, the Bolton bookcase, plays out. How soon will there be a decision from Judge Lambert? That decision presumably would, you know, would be appealed. Just kind of how does this unfold? Sure. So Judge Lambert gave us somewhat of a timeline because he said he's not going to rule until the government provides him with the classified information for in-camera review. And we don't know when that's going to be in particular, because he said apparently there's protests surrounding the courthouse. I'm not sure what, I haven't looked at the news, so I'm not sure why. I don't think they're protesting his arguments, but for whatever else is going on down on the mall area where the courthouse is located. So I, you know, it's, I, I imagine they, obviously they could get the information to the judge over the weekend to look at. So it's theoretically possible there could be a decision before Tuesday, but which is when the official publication date of the book is. But I imagine we'll get a decision on the TRO within a week. I mean, I'm totally guessing. You never know. A week? The book is going to be displayed in bookstores by... Anyway, I mean, the judge is not going to grant the TRO because it's just physically impossible and Bolton has no legal control. But then I guess um, I haven't read it yet, but I understand Bolton's lawyer filed a motion to dismiss. And unless I haven't seen anything issued by the court as to the time frame for that motion, the, typically the government would now have two weeks to respond. And then Cooper, Bolton's lawyer, would have a week or so to, if I remember what my, my timeline is in, in D.C., another week to respond. That could all be expedited if the court... Yeah, but they'll be in the third printing of this book by then. I mean, yeah. it's, number, it's the number one book in the country. Yeah. I have litigated these cases, and the, one of the cases, it wasn't mentioned by name, but they argued about it, which was the Stillman, Danny Stillman case. I litigated almost 20 years ago when they were talking about whether Cooper could get access to the in-camera meaning the court only gets to see materials because they're classified. And the government said, no, case law says that's not permissible. That was my case that I litigated under pre-pub review. And that case I litigated, it took me like five or six years to litigate. Even though Cooper actually has clearances. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. What's this? What? You mentioned need to know. The government lawyer mentioned need to know. And it is the government's view for the last 20 years because of my cases, that the lawyer, the author's lawyer, has no need to know 
the manuscript information. And the D.C. Circuit, I, I won before Judge Sullivan, the same Emmett Sullivan who's deciding the Flynn case, uh, handled this case back in 2002. But the D.C. Circuit reversed, saying that the judge first has to make a determination on his or her own before involving the private lawyers, even if we have security clearances. So, Mark, I've got an observation here I want you to uh, reflect on, um, because as a reporter who has many times uh, dealt with stories that uh, allegedly contain classified information or disclose classified information, it's been my observation over the years, whether it was the run-up to the Iraq War or the CIA's use of enhanced interrogation techniques, that classifications decisions are often abused and that there's overclassification time and again government studies have reached that conclusion and that uh, the material is classified to avoid political embarrassment rather than to protect legitimate sources and methods so as a journalist I am hoping that this case gets into discovery and that we find out exactly how Michael Ellis came to overrule the apparent decision of Ellen Knight, Ellis being the political appointee, Knight being the career person, and conclude that there was highly classified information in this manuscript, because it seems to me this may be a case where the government's abuse of classification can potentially be exposed. So you're, you're absolutely right about overclassification, and this process is incredibly arbitrary, discretionary, and broad beyond belief. So the executive order that governs classification that is currently in effect was issued by President Obama in 2009. The uh, Trump administration never got around to issuing a new one, because I don't think they frankly care. But it hasn't changed in, in many years anyway. And just so everyone understands, what could be classified? So section 1.4 of this executive order says that information that constitutes foreign government information can be classified. Information that constitutes the foreign relations or foreign activities of the United States could be classified. Now, I say that because, geez, that could be anything, right? President Trump's conversations with President Xi of China fit within both of those prongs. Now, there still has to be an articulable basis, a rational basis that the government has to present to the court in these types of cases. The problem is, while lots of things can happen, and Judge Lamberth uh, is a very independent judge, and he's the judge actually who ordered recently that Senator, uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sit for a deposition in a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act case, which is literally unheard of. So this guy can do things uh, at his own tune. And so we never know what's going to happen. But historically, in pre-pub cases, which I've litigated now for 25 years, we never see discovery into the underlying decisions of the um, classification adjudicators. But we don't. The public doesn't. Cooper won't. Bolton won't. But the court will. Because the Ellis and Knight and the uh, General Nakasone and Ev Mark uh, Evanaya, uh, if I'm saying Mark's uh, last name right, uh, Evania Evanaya at the, at the Counterterrorism or Counterintelligence Center, uh, and uh, Ratcliffe, the DNI, all of these folks are going to have to submit classified declarations that articulate what in the book specifically is classified and why they consider it classified. And then the judge will determine whether or not those explanations are sufficient. And I have had cases where the, gov the judge has decided the government's explanations are not su uh, sufficient and has ordered the information to be declassified. So it could happen, but we won't see it except for what is deemed to be unclassified. Well, we got to end it here. My last question was going to be, uh, Isakoff and I have both covered Chuck Cooper for a long time, great lawyer, but the question, I guess, is why didn't Bolton hire you, Mark? <laughs> or maybe I won't put you in the position of having to answer that question. I'll just make it a last ob observation. Maybe he should have hired you. 
<laughs> well, maybe after listening to Skullduggery, he'll drop Cooper and hire Zaid. Uh... And now we won't get Cooper on the podcast. We tried to get him before. But anyway, Mark, uh, Zaid, thanks so much for joining us on Skullduggery. Great conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure the audience did. And uh, uh, come back to the show. Always willing to do so, gents. Just say right. when. We now have with us Fred Flights, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy and a longtime aide and associate of John Bolton. Fred Flights was the chief of staff for John Bolton for part of the time of his uh, tenure as national security advisor uh, for about uh, six or seven months in 2018. Fred, welcome to Skullduggery. Good beer. So, look, lots to talk about with John Bolton's book. Uh, You have known him for years. You worked with him at the White House under President Donald Trump. He's now come forward with a damning account and portrait of the president you served. What do you make of John Bolton's book? Well, I haven't read it, so I I can't comment on exactly what's in it. But you've seen the numerous press reports. My main observation is that there are a number of experts like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo is another one. I'm friends of both of them who came into this administration knowing that Donald Trump was going to be an unconventional president. He was a businessman. He had no government experience, no national security experience. He's a deal maker and that they would have to adapt to uh, be effective, to serve this president. And it was going to be hard and that this president had positions that most Republicans don't, such as his adamant rejection of the war with Iraq. And this was hard for a number of uh, Republicans who came in the administration, H.R. McMaster, Rex Tillerson, General Mattis. Including yourself, I presume. Well, Pompeo found a way to work with this president, how to be effective. And for some reason, John Bolton didn't. And I think that's a shame. I mean, his job was to be effective, to help carry out the president's policies. And it's pretty clear that in the case of John Bolton, he was not able to do this. But um, Fred, it's not just policy differences or style differences. I mean, John Bolton called him stunningly uninformed. And you know, a series of very high level officials who worked for uh, Donald Trump said essentially the same thing. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, called him an effing moron. Others, I mean, Master called him an idiot. I mean, it goes on and on. So you worked for him. Do you disagree with those assessments of the president's intelligence? I like President Trump, and I think he's been an effective president. I have spoken to him since I left government. But let's talk about one of these instances. Supposedly, the president didn't know that Finland is an independent country. And you can see people in the media, they've been making fun of the president for that. I don't know that that's true. But I will tell you that, let's assume in in an Oval Office meeting, the president made a statement to that effect, maybe he misspoke. That's the type of internal discussion and internal detail that a trusted advisor should never reveal. Remember, Barack Obama once called ISIS a JV terrorist group. Think of all the stupid things Obama must have said behind closed doors in the Oval Office, except no Obama advisor has written a book about that stuff. But that's kind of my point. Why do you think Jim Mattis would have done that, Rex Tillerson, H.R. McMaster? Why are so many people, and some of them very publicly, saying these things about, I mean, are they all just disloyal? Or is there a pattern here that suggests that a lot of people in the administration question the president's intelligence and competence? Well, look, I give McMaster and Mattis and Tillerson a lot of credit because they're not going to write books while this president is still in office. I think that is an incredible violation of the trust of a president. We want presidents to consult with and to confide in the best possible experts, knowing that that person's not going to run out and write a book before he leaves office. And that, that I think, by doing this, I think John Bolton has set up a very dangerous precedent here. Now, I don't think these other advisors are right to talk about their internal deliberations with the president either. But to write a 560 or 70 page book with internal discussions 
that a national security yeah. advisor had with so, a sitting president, I think is a very dangerous uh, precedent. So you know him well, and you, I think you considered him a friend, right, John Bolton? So why do you think he did it? Um, you'll have to ask him. Any thoughts? Um, you could have him on your show and see why he wrote the book. He'll be talking about that on ABC on Sunday night. Well, are you are you disappointed in your longtime friend and associate? Yes, I am disappointed. Have you because told him that? I, I think a national security advisor has to keep the trust of the president. That John Bolton, for whatever reasons, decided to reveal all kinds of confidential discussions, deliberative policy discussions that should never have left the Oval Office. I mean, this idea of not knowing, you know, there was another one that the president supposedly didn't know that the British have nuclear weapons. I don't know that that's true. But, you know, someone without national security experience is going to make all kinds of mistakes. And we want them to make these mistakes behind closed doors with their advisors who can help educate them. And if you're going to spill all this stuff out and not keep the president's confidence, he's not going to speak to the experts he needs to talk to to keep our country safe. That's why this book is so dangerous. I get that. And I think there have been, um, you know, presidents of both parties that would probably agree with your basic premise. On the other hand, there are revelations in the Bolton book that have shocked a lot of people, including people who share your political views and national security views. And, you know, probably the one that has leapt out the most and maybe the most shocking is that the president told President Xi of China that it was okay for his government to proceed with rounding up a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. That's something that has been condemned by U.S. officials across the board, Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberals. If that happened, and John Bolton says it did, aren't you appalled that the president of the United States would give a green light to the authoritarian dictator of China to engage in conduct like that? Are you personally appalled by that? Do you think it's believable that President Xi used the term concentration camp in meeting with no, the president? No, no, no. So he talked so about the rounding up of the that Uyghurs. Means the that means with Trump. Well, let, let, me, let me explore this, because I've been giving some thinking to this. Right. I don't know what happened here. I can imagine that President Xi sat down with Trump and referred to Chinese Muslim terrorists in China, which is what the Chinese government calls them. Now, um, you know, they are the- A million terrorists, a million Uyghur terrorists. And if the president's not acting on that, I want to see him take action on it. But my guess is that if Xi mentioned the Uyghurs to Trump, he didn't know who they were. I bet you guys can't even spell Uyghur. I can't without a spell check. I wrote a chapter about the Uyghurs in my book on Obama's war on terror, so right. I can spell but, Uyghur. But, okay, I'll give you credit for that. I can't but, spell it without spelling it. U-I-H-U-R-G, I, I can't remember. Yeah. I don't want to gloss over this because, you know, I, frankly, I think this is, you know, maybe the most significant part of, of Bolton's book of all. And even if he didn't use the word concentration camps, we know what we're talking about. Detention camps, the U.S. State Department has condemned them year after year in uh, human rights reports. There's no glossing over what we're talking about here. And Bolton says the interpreter for the discussion between Trump and Xi told him that. You worked for Bolton for years. Have you ever known him to lie? No, I haven't known him to lie, but I don't know what happened here. Because as I said, I'm not sure that Trump knows what the Uyghurs are, and I don't know what the Chinese president said. I know the Chinese government refers to the Uyghurs as terrorists. They shouldn't. That's not true. The Uyghurs are being brutally oppressed. The U.S. government should stand up for them. And, and my hope is that the story isn't true. My guess is that the president was told something by Z and did not understand what Z was saying. Z never used the term concentration camp. And as I said, I doubt that President Trump knows who the Uyghurs Sh are. Shouldn't the president of the United States know who the Uyghurs are and know what China is doing, hurting them in a million of them in detention camps for re-education? Shouldn't the president of the United States know that? 
does the mainstream media ever mention the Uyghurs except for the Washington Post? And that, I think, is a miracle. No, I was asking you about shouldn't the president... Shouldn't he have been... problem. How about the people of Tibet? They're being oppressed, too. I'm not going to downplay what's happening to the Uyghurs, but the world is full of... Of, of, uh, of minority groups that are being brutally oppressed. And I think you're right. The president should know which group this is. But this is one of many groups that are being oppressed around the world. But you can understand why people, regardless of their political views and whether they support or oppose the president, would be deeply disturbed to read an account like that. Absolutely, if it's true. I have to tell you, I'm extremely skeptical. But I'd, I'd, you know, let's have some reporters ask the president about this. Do you think now, he just signed a declaration about the Uyghurs to protect them? Uh, but, but you know, in in my mind, we don't know what President Z said to Trump. How did he betray them? Um, but I, I, I would like to get some answers from the White House on this. But the larger point that Bolton raises in the book, and he has done this, he and and many others have said the same thing, is that the president has a tendency to placate authoritarian leaders and dictators around the world. And the other example and examples in this book is the president intervening in criminal cases to help people like uh, Erdogan uh, in Turkey and the Chinese. Is that something that concerns you at all? I mean, were you aware of, of that tendency and is it a problem? I haven't read the book. I don't know what that's about. I didn't experience anything like that. Uh, but, you know, one thing that Bolton says over and over again that the president is always out to get votes, and he's always trying to promote himself. And I've challenged that by pointing out what Bolton called the turning point for his relationship with the president. Do you, do you know what that is? You're talking about the president the... refused to bomb Iran last yeah. year. Now, yeah. the, the Iranians shot down an unarmed U.S. drone, and just about Bolton's whole national security team addressed bomb Iran in response. And at the last minute, Trump said no, because 100 to 200 Iranians would be killed. That was actually the right decision. And for and Bolt called that the most irrational thing I ever witnessed any president do. This wasn't to get votes. This wasn't to, to make himself popular at home. This, this reflected the president's principle not to get America into unnecessary wars. I was on Tucker Carlson the night before that happened, and, and I was talking about that with Tucker. The president was absolutely right, and it disproves this narrative that everything the president does is without principle or to get reelected or to promote himself at home. This shows he does have principles. But actually, that's an interesting case where Bolton obviously uh, believes in an aggressive foreign policy confronting regimes like the Iranians at every step. Um, I'm a little surprised to hear you as the head of a conservative think tank that argues for aggressive confrontation with the Iranians saying you think the president made the right decision and Bolton was wrong. I don't know. I just wrote an article for National Review noting that the president has always been open to negotiation with the Iranians and that the Trump administration should be open for that in the next term. I mean, I'm not fooling myself. I don't think the Iranians are ready for negotiations, but I think we should keep the door open. And I noted in my article that one reason that uh, Bolton left the White House was because he opposed negotiations with Iran. I think we should keep the door open. And I supported negotiations with North Korea. You worked for John Bolton at the White House for about six months period in 2018. Why did you leave, by the way? I had another opportunity to head a, a national security think tank. Did you hear John Bolton express frustrations with the president's conduct I'm not going to discuss and policy? My internal discussions with John. John might be discussing his internal discussions with the president, but I'm not going to betray John Bolton's trust. Well, let me try it another way. Were you surprised to read that Bolton has written this damning account of the president? I'm disappointed, and I've told him that. And I wrote an op-ed in January asking him for to withdraw this book because of the damage I thought it would do to the office of the presidency. And not just this president, the precedent it sets that a senior policy advisor would write a tell-all book violating the confidence of a president. And, and I was on Martha McCall's show last night. I repeated it when she asked me, what would you tell John Bolton right now? I'd say I'm disappointed. I don't think you should have written this book. But you say you did tell him that. What was his reaction? 
I didn't tell him personally. I told him in an in op-ed. Okay. Other aspects of the pres- of the portrait that Bolton provides of the president as somebody who um, is solely interested in his reelection, views every foreign policy decision. Now, you've given us an example of just, just one that, that does not. I've just no, prove I, that with the Iran thing, which no, Bolton I, I, said was yeah. the turning point for his relationship. Not bombing Iran turned Bolton against Donald Trump? Really? I mean, that's the only thing the media should be talking about. That makes no sense whatsoever. Fred, at the outset, uh, you talked about some of the administration officials who have adapted and learned to work well with the president. So you mentioned uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. What has he specifically done to learn how to work with this president? You know, senior advisors to the president have to realize who they work for and what their job is. Their job is to implement the president's foreign policy and to give him honest advice. Now, Mike Pompeo has found a way to do that. Now, every president has their eccentricities. Uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they did not read their presidential daily brief every day. Their advisors had to find ways to get that information to them. Bill Clinton thought he was smarter than the CIA. He didn't want to read his intelligence briefings. So his advisors found a way to get him this information anyway. And I think this is a this is a task that every NSC, every intelligence community has to deal with with a new president. Now, Mike Pompeo figured out how to do that, how to carry out the president's policies, get him the honest advice and input that he needed to make policy decisions. Does it surprise you at all that um, in a 2018 meeting with the North Korean leader, according to Bolton's account, Pompeo wrote him a note, gave it gave it to Bolton saying uh, that Trump was, quote, full of shit? Well, Mike Pompeo has answered that by saying, I don't pass notes. Is, is that a denial? <laughs> or... I'm just telling you what he said. I might add, I've been exchanging emails with Mike. He's out of the country right now. Yeah. He hasn't commented on that. But I'm just telling you that's his response. I don't pass notes. What is he, has he said anything to you about the book itself, just more generally? I'm not going to comment on my communications with it. Okay. Fred, you said before that the fundamental problem here is that a number of people like John Bolton went to work for President Trump when they had very strong views about matters like the war in Iraq, about confronting regimes like the Iranians and North Koreans, and that that, those were views that were not shared by President Trump, and that that's the reason for we've seen so much dissension within the ranks. But you shared those views as well, and yet you went to work for President Trump. You were a strong supporter of the war in Iraq, uh, as an example. Did you struggle with the decision to go work for this president? Did it bother you that you were going to work for a guy who actually differed from your very strong views on foreign policy for many years? You know, when I decided to join the White House, I supported the president's agenda. I don't agree with him on everything. I don't agree with the policies of, of every policy of, of any president. I strongly agreed with President Trump's commitment to withdraw from the fraudulent nuclear deal with Iran. I played a role in helping carry that out, and I think it was one of his biggest accomplishments. I support his efforts to engage North Korea because I didn't want a war with North Korea. I didn't know whether those uh, talk to North Korea would go anywhere. I was skeptical, but I thought that what the president did was successful. We haven't had a North Korean nuclear test since September of 2017. The number of missiles North Korea has fired is significantly down. Now, I know things are getting out of hand there right now. That that tends to happen before presidential elections. I think the president made a difference, but there's a lot more to do. And you know, I'm proud of what I've contributed to this administration. Are you going to work for his reelection? I am. As long as you brought up North Korea, there's a lot of questions right now about what's going on. Kim Jong-un has not been seen in quite some time. People are wondering if he is still functioning as the leader of North Korea. What's your assessment? Well, I think the story of whether he died, I didn't believe that at the time. I think that's been settled. But there's obviously something going on in North Korea. Uh, His sister who always was seen as a senior advisor, maybe rising as uh, the number two in command, 
why Kim Jong-un apparently hid for six weeks. It could be he was hiding from the coronavirus. It could be he had heart surgery. We just don't know. I think we're looking at a, a situation now where the, the country is in Syria, has serious economic problems. I don't doubt that Kim thinks that Trump is going to lose the election in November, given the overwhelming and negative media that the North Koreans are seeing. And look, CNN International is even worse. And my guess is that the North Korean government is preparing to be appeased by a Biden presidency. They know once Biden is in, is in office, huge billion-dollar concessions will be on the way. And I think that's what the North Koreans are preparing for. How, how would a Biden presidency appease North Korea more than President Trump already has? President Trump hasn't appeased North Korea at all. He's greeted Kim Jong-un. He's invited him to a summit in Singapore. He's praised him. He's called him a friend. I mean, this is the leader of perhaps the most, the supreme leader of the most supreme rogue state in the world, and the president has embraced him. He put maximum pressure on North Korea and forced China to comply with UN sanctions, which which brought up the Singapore summit in 2018 and at least temporarily convinced the North Koreans to dial back their, their missile tests and their nuclear program. It's not a perfect policy, but I don't know what the perfect policy to North Korea is. Trump tried something that no previous president had tried. And I think that the, the Biden administration will want to rush in there and, and declare victory with a quick agreement with North Korea. And to do that, I think there's going to be a huge payoff, huge payoff to Iran, too. Let me ask you about China, because you've seen the president uh, up close on these big foreign policy issues. And I think there are probably people out there who have a little bit of whiplash in terms of the president's rhetoric on China. There were all the kind of almost congratulatory things he was saying about the Chinese, about Xi and the Chinese leadership and how they dealt with a coronavirus, you know, in, in the beginning, and then, you know, kind of flipped, you know, 180 degrees back and forth on trade. Why isn't, isn't there a kind of a consistent message from this president on, uh, on China? The president wants a trade deal with China. He's very upset at predatory trade the theft of intellectual property, and a variety of other steps the Chinese have taken that has really worked to the disadvantage of the U.S. consumer and, 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 and U.S. businesses. At the other hand, he wants to get tough with China on some of the things it's doing that are destabilizing. And I, I think the president was torn when the coronavirus pandemic struck because this partial trade deal that was announced in January was very important to him, and he didn't want to lose it. But over the last few months, he's had to speak up because of the criminal negligence by the Chinese government, which led to the spread of this pandemic worldwide. And as much as the president wants a trade deal, he has to hold the Chinese government responsible for this. I mean, the problem right now is that the Chinese government has still not fully cooperated with the World Health Organization, uh, with the U.S. government. And we don't know exactly where this virus came from and whether another one could come from where it originated. You were working for the president, Fred, uh, in uh, the summer of 2018 when he had the summit with uh, President Putin in Helsinki. And this is something that Bolton writes about in his book. He wanted the president to confront uh, Putin about Russia's electoral interference in 2016, drafted a statement for him to uh, read to Putin. Trump didn't do so and then had that press conference where he notoriously seemed to give Putin a pass for what the Russians did in 2016. Were you personally disappointed when you saw what the president did in Helsinki? I think I was, I was with him in Helsinki. I flew over there and I can tell you that uh, President Trump did know Finland was a country during this trip. So whenever that happened, that must have been before he got on Air Force One to fly to, fly to Helsinki. Um, the president is a deal maker. He says a lot of things to try to get to a deal. He subsequently put some pretty tough sanctions on Russia for meddling in the 2016 election. It was a very tough statement in the fall of 2018 to protect the, the uh, midterm election of, of 2018, which I might add, John Bolton helped coordinate and made some strong statements to say this is going to protect us from meddling by Russia and other countries. So, you know, I, I don't recall exactly what came up at the summit, but I find these meetings sort of messy operations. 
and uh, it's part of a process to get to an agreement. One last question about something that also took place while you were there, and that was uh, Bolton's uh, directive to reorganize the National Security Council, and and as part of that, the pandemic response group was dissolved and put in another section of the National Security Council that dealt with chemical and biological weapons. A lot of people since COVID-19 have looked back at that and said that it prevented people who had the most expertise on viruses and pandemics from raising to the highest levels with the principles the concerns that they had about the spread of this virus. As you look back at that decision, was Bolton wrong to reorganize the NSC in the way that he did to downgrade the pandemic response group? Nothing was downgraded. My friend Tim Morrison had the WMD office, which handled pandemics. This story has been peddled by former Obama officials, particularly the former head of this office who was an Obama official. It's just not true. There was plenty of coverage to keep senior officials aware of pandemics and epidemics. And uh, the fact that there was a reorganization didn't have any effect whatsoever in keeping the president and senior staff of the White House aware of these threats. Would you agree that the, the president and the White House could have acted more aggressively earlier to deal with the uh, virus? You know, that's an excellent question. And I, I mean, if, if we had shut down flights from, from China in December and put up um, social distancing in January, I think we'd be a lot better off. The problem is that you have to act on the information you have. We know Anthony Fauci, as of March of 2020, was saying that there wouldn't be any problem going to movie theaters and that the virus wasn't going to be, be a big problem. The president was getting mixed advice from a variety of people. The World Health Organization was misleading the world until late January about this threat. So it's easy to say, you know, in 2020 hindsight, we should have done better. We should have had uh, 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 better policies to stop it. I think there's some truth to that. But at the time, I think the president made the best decisions possible. And from whatever mistakes he made, and mistakes were made, I think this country did a lot better than most other Western countries, especially in Europe. All right. Well, uh, Fred, I really appreciate you uh, you joining us. Uh, you have uh, unique insights into John Bolton, uh, some of which you've shared with us, others of which you have not. But uh, I appreciate you asking questions and coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks to national security lawyer Mark Zaid and top John Bolton aide Fred Flights for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.